place four years ago this February, February 2013, as a, a husband and a wife were out on a trail walking their dog in a property in, in Northern California. They, they walked the trail that they walked every night with their dog, and I'm sure the dog knew where to go and, and they knew where to go. Uh, but along the way in this February uh, evening, they, they spotted something shiny on the ground. And uh, it was partially covered with with moss. They didn't quite understand what it was. But upon investigation, they they found a metal can that was buried in the ground. And so the husband took a stick and and began chipping away at this metal can, trying to dislodge it. And and he finally did. He lifted it up and he noticed how heavy it was. And he, he said to his wife, wow, this thing is heavy. It must be filled with lead paint was his initial reaction. And at that moment, right when he said that, the, the lid cracked and it exposed what was inside. He exposed a, a rib of a single coin. And then as he, he began to open it up a little bit, he noticed this pot of coins. That's what he, what he found there. And uh, so he put the lid back on and, and picked it up and began to take it home with his wife. And so heavy was this can that he had to take a little breather before he, he got home. Uh, carrying this thing was so heavy. And, and over the next few days, they returned to that spot and they did some digging and found uh, uh, five more small cans. And then they pulled out a metal detector and found some more cans all filled with coins. All in all, this couple in California found eight cans containing 1,400 coins dating from 1847 until 1894, face value of $28,000. So current day value estimated to be $10 million. It's believed to be the largest known discovery of a buried gold coins ever recovered in the United States. And now the reason why I haven't used their name is because they've chosen to be anonymous, um, and rightly so. Think about if you said we found all these coins on our property, <laughs> all the treasure seekers would be coming and and seeking their own treasure. Um, and, and the couple is quite sure that they have captured all the coins. They've collected all of them, buried this location. They've dug far and wide, and uh, they've called this collection the the Saddle Ridge Hoard because it was found on a ridge they called the Saddle Ridge in their property. And uh, this is a lesson the wife wants to pass on. She said this, whatever answers you seek, they might be right at home. The answer to all our difficulties was right there under our feet for years. So don't be above bending down to check on a rusty can. Now, there's been widespread uh, speculation about the origin of these coins. Uh, Many link the coins to uh, a robbery, perhaps, but the U.S. Mint has said we have no information linking the Saddle Ridge Horde to any thefts of the United States. Because believe me, if it was a theft, the United States would be going after their own money. But they, they don't have any idea where it's from. The predominant theory is these coins are buried by an unknown individual who trusted the ground more than he trusted the banks. And uh, these coins are currently for sale. I, I grabbed this as Amazon like yesterday. I, I grabbed this. And uh, you can purchase these coins. Heck, if, if you want to purchase that coin and donate it to the Brandon Children College Fund, you're more than welcome to do it. That, that one coin there would be, would be great. Um, but they're all for sale. You can read all about it. Uh, it's got their own website, the Saddle Ridge Hoard. Contrast that with the story of the many who migrated out to California during the gold rush of 1849. 
James Marshall discovered Sutter's Mill. This is Sutter's Mill right here, 1848. I think it was January, it was maybe February that year. <clears throat> and uh, some 300,000 prospectors then migrated out to California. More than half of them came in 1949 that next year, but others in the, the years following that. And uh, tripled the population of California. From 150,000 to 450,000 in California. San Francisco's population in 1840 was 800 people. And nine years later was 50,000 people. Mass migration literally put California on the map as it became a state in 1850. And so rather than 1849 is when the uh, exodus took place and when the when mass migration took place. Um, and six years later, California being on the map was the first home state, was the home state of the first presidential nominee from the Republican Party, John Charles Fremont. So it had gained such prominence in just that short little time with all these people migrating out to, to California. And these treasure seekers came from all over the world. Half came from land across America, but there were many from uh, Europe and Australia and China who had sailed around and just all seeking their fortune. Now, initially, there was so much gold in California, the prospectors were able to retrieve nuggets with their hands or they panned for gold in the rivers and streams. But quickly that dried up and more sophisticated methods were needed, like digging mine shafts and tunnels in search of gold. And there's a lot of gold in California, 750,000 pounds of gold was found in California during the, the gold rush of, of those days. Um, however, that didn't mean great wealth for all the, the gold seekers, the treasure seekers. A few made great money, about half made modest money, and half came up empty. In fact, recent scholarship says that uh, merchants made far more money than miners during the gold rush. The big example of that is Levi Strauss. Sold blue jeans and got rich on the gold miners who needed pants and needed jeans. It was the supply stores, the boarding houses, the saloons where the money was made. And by the mid-1850s, it was really the only the owners of the gold mining com companies who employed all the miners who made any money. Listen to the testimony of one prospector. His name was Sheldon Schufelt. He said this. He's writing to his cousin. I have left those that I love as my own behind and risked everything, endured many hardships to get here. I want to make enough to make life easier and do some good with before I return. But many, very many that come here meet with bad success and thousands will leave their bones here. Others will lose their health, contract diseases that they will carry with them to the graves. Some will have to beg their way home, and probably one half that come here will never make enough to carry them back home. But this does not alter the fact about the gold being plenty here, but shows what a poor, frail being man is and how liable to disappointments, disease, and death. I just want you to contrast. On the one hand, you have this married couple out for a leisurely walk, just enjoying the atmosphere of the trail with their dog. Finding a fortune makes them set for life. And on the other hand, you have those who risk their entire livelihood and search for treasure only to die a hard death in the process. And, and this contrast really is the contrast of our text this morning. So if you haven't done so, you can open your Bibles to Romans chapter 9. We've been working our way through Romans and we, we come right here. If you need help with your pew Bibles, page 946. Romans 9 verses 
30 to, to 33, groups the task into two different people. You've got the, the Gentiles on the one hand who were in large part not seeking the Lord, but they found him. They found righteousness. And, and the second group, the Jews, were in large part seeking the Lord, but they didn't find him. They didn't find their way to righteousness. My message this morning is entitled, Stumbling Upon Righteousness. And we're only going to look at the first half of the text. I had every intent to preach the whole thing from 30 to 33, but uh, just I was rich enough in the first half about stumbling upon Jesus that I just didn't want to go on because this whole stumbling over Jesus is such a big theme in Scripture with, with uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and Paul, and Peter all mentioning this quotation from the Old Testament. A couple quotations about stumbling over Jesus. This morning we're talking about stumbling upon Jesus. But I'm going to read the entire passage for us. Romans 9, 30 through 33. What should we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. And what shall we say? We should say, yep, that's exactly right. That some stumbled upon Jesus and some stumbled over Jesus. Why? Verse 32. Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as it were, based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Uh, I trust here you can see the two groups identified in verse 30 as the Gentiles, and verse 31 as Israel. Uh, I can trust you can see how the Gentiles weren't pursuing the Lord. It says here in verse 30 that they did not pursue righteousness. But the Israelites were pursuing righteousness. It says in verse 31 that they were pursuing a law that would lead to righteousness. Trust you can see the Gentiles attain the righteousness. Verse 30, that is a righteousness that is by faith. And Israel did not attain this righteousness. It says in verse 30 that they did not succeed in reaching that law. And just like the search for gold where those not looking for a fortune found one, And those looking for a fortune came up empty. So also, we see in this text, some stumbling upon righteousness and some stumbling over Jesus. Well, we're going to look this morning at stumbling upon righteousness. Because um, this is what the Gentiles did. And this would be encouraging to you as you think about how we found Christ. And how maybe other people that you know might stumble upon him as well. Again, verse 30. What shall we say then? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness based on faith. See, this is the reality of the Gentiles. They were without God in this world. They were apart from the covenant of God. Uh, unlike the Jews. In fact, look at chapter 9 and verse 4. This is the big contrast of this, this whole section of Scripture. The Jews were Israelites, and to them belonged the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. And you could say none of those things came to the Gentiles. The Gentiles didn't have the adoption. The Gentiles didn't have the glory. The Gentiles didn't have the the covenants or or the law or the worship or the promises. They they didn't have any of those things. They were apart. And, and, And furthermore, they weren't really seeking the Lord. They had their other gods, if anything, that they were seeking. But then they stumbled upon Jesus. Now, certainly there were some exceptions. There were some Gentiles who pursued the Lord, like Nicholas in Acts chapter 6, verse 5, a proselyte from Antioch. That's what a proselyte means, one who's come from outside, from the the Gentile people into the Jewish community. Or like Cornelius, the God-fearing Gentile centurion, 
who uh, was a God-fearer, Acts 10, verses 1 and 2, or, or Titius Justus, a worshiper of God, whose house was right next door to the synagogue in Corinth, Acts 18, verse 7. But these men were the exception to the rule. They were, if you will, the, the overflowing of, of the cup of blessing to Israel that came to some of the Gentiles. And Gentiles, in general, though, the Gentiles were not pursuing the Lord, but they found him. Or, more properly, perhaps from Romans 9, they were found by the Lord and there's no better picture in the Bible, I think, than the city in Antioch, which is recorded in Acts 13, one of the first places that Paul visited on his missionary journey. He, he left um, from Jerusalem, left from Antioch, actually sailed across the Mediterranean Sea and, and went up north um, a little bit to this place called Sidian Antioch. And that's what was his custom. He entered the synagogue, <clears throat> excuse me, on the Sabbath. It says in Acts 13, verse 27, here's his message about Jesus. Entering the synagogue, this way said, Acts thirteen twenty seven. Those who live in Jerusalem and the rulers, because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, and asked Pilate to have him executed. <clears throat> excuse me, I'm just going to. And when they carried out all that was written of him. They took him down from the tree, laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And that by everyone who believes is freed from everything which you could not be freed of by the law of Moses. And there's essentially the message, right? Jesus, when he did, he walked on the earth and he lived. But the Jewish rulers, even though they heard about him in the scriptures, they fulfilled the scriptures by condemning him to death. But he died and he rose again. And by raising again, he demonstrates his power over death that we who believe in Jesus are freed from our sins. And Paul's message met with great acceptance in the synagogue. Those who heard Paul speak, Acts 13, verse 42, begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. This is better, right? A pastor leaves church and says, oh, good message, pastor. Good message. Thanks for your message. But this was like, no, this was, can you come back next week? Your message was so awesome. You need to come preach to us again next week. Maybe that, I don't know if that'll be your response. <laughs> Probably not, but I would hope so. But that's what Paul's response was. Oh, can you, can you come back next Sabbath? And so seven days later, next Saturday, Paul shows up in the synagogue and says in Acts 13, 44, almost the whole city gathered together to hear the word of the Lord. Can you imagine the scene? Jews and Gentiles trying to crowd into this small building to hear Paul speak about Jesus. And uh, rather than rejoicing in the message of the Messiah, actually the Jews were filled with jealousy when they, when they saw the crowds because this was their God. They, they don't want to share their God with other people. And they were jealous and they then began to contradict what was spoken by Paul and they began to revile Paul, the very one they invited to be back next Sunday, next Saturday. They reviled him. At that point, Acts 13, verse 46. I love this scene. It is the scene of our text this morning. When Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly saying, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Because it's the Jew first and also to the Greek. So it goes to them first. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. And I'm not sure if Jews and Gentiles were on one side, but it's almost as if you've reputed it. But now we're turning to the Gentiles. Or somehow we're, we're turning and Paul says this, For the Lord has so commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. 
And when the Gentiles heard it, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Those in the Gentiles, they, they heard that it's not just for the Jews anymore. It's for us. And they rejoiced. Great happiness came upon them. And, and, and I just think about the many Gentiles, perhaps in city in Antioch, who woke up that morning with very little thought about God. Maybe they had heard this rumblings about this, this uh, Jewish rabbi who'd come and spoke some things last week. And he said some interesting things. And, and they said he's going to come back again. And people were really interested. Like, okay, well, there's something going on down in the synagogue, whatever. But they woke up and they realized that, that a lot more is bigger than they thought. And they just kind of happened along in this crowd to the synagogue to see what was happening and and then uh, they heard the salvation of God being offered to the Gentiles, something they hadn't even thought about, hadn't even crossed their mind. This glorious God that they'd heard about from the Jews, what was the Jewish God, was now coming to them, extending salvation to them. And they repented and believed and became part of the children of God, experiencing forgiveness of sins, finding righteousness. Those who perhaps in the morning weren't even seeking God, didn't attend synagogue services, weren't 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 churchgoers, if you will, right? Weren't interested, weren't religious, but they found righteousness. Stumbling upon Jesus, if you will. And that's exactly the picture that Paul puts forth here in verse 30. What should we say then? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. How like God this is. People not even pursuing it attain it. And then Paul goes on to describe this righteousness. They attained it, that is, attained what? This righteousness that is by faith. And this is really the gospel that Paul's been describing in Romans. Romans chapter 3, verse 21. The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophecies bear witness to it. The righteousness of God which comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. And there it is, right? The, we get God's righteousness when we believe in Him. Romans 4 explains it further. For what does the Scripture say, Paul writes? Romans 4, verse 3. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. There it is. Right? Faith in God means righteousness to us. And then he goes on to explain. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but what is due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in Him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. And in some regards, Paul is, is talking about the Jews, right? Who's, who's working and trying to get there. That's, that's not a gift. That's not grace. But it's the one who doesn't work, but believes who's justified before the Lord and counted as righteous. And that is what the Gentiles did. And that's how we are saved today. We are counted righteous through faith alone. And that's what the Gentiles stumbled upon. They stumbled upon faith in Jesus. They stumbled upon forgiveness of their sins. And, and the Gentiles in Pisidian and Antioch weren't the only ones to stumble upon righteousness. As Paul continued his, his uh, missionary journey to, to um, Iconium and Lystra and Derbe and then back again, there were many Gentiles who just stumbled upon Jesus. I mean, so great was the response of the Gentiles when Paul and Barnabas returned. They reported of what God had done, how he'd opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. See, the Gentiles weren't seeking the Lord, per se. They were there where they were, and the missionaries came to them 
and told them of Jesus. I mean, they're just living their life. And then someone came and told them about Jesus and they embraced it and their lives were forever changed. And, and the story in the book of Acts carries through the same thing on the second missionary journey as Paul travels into Asia and Macedonia and Achaia. The same thing. All these Jews were stumbling upon Jesus. These, all these Gentiles were stumbling upon Jesus. They heard of the message of Jesus and believed and their faith was counted as righteousness. And it's not like these Gentiles came from where they were to seek the God in Jerusalem. Oh, there were some like that, like like Queen of Sheba came up and looked and and the Ethiopian eunuch there was with Candace of Ethiopia. There was this this coming into Jerusalem like that's where you find the Jewish God. But these Gentiles were where they were and the message came to them and they believed. In fact, this is the whole thrust of of the book of Romans of uh, Paul wants to continue this work of bringing the gospel to people who haven't believed I mean, chapter 10, we're going to see this, right? Verse 14, how then will they call on him who they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him who they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? How do they preach unless they're sent? Paul says, I want to be sent. I want to go. I want to preach the gospel where it's never been preached before. Acts 15, verse 20. Paul says this, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation, but as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see and those who have never heard will understand. It's exactly these Gentiles stumbling upon Jesus. They've never seen before, but, but then they see and they haven't heard, but they had come to understand as the gospel comes and reaches them. Had a great illustration of this in the weekly word this week. I'm not sure if you took time to read it. I know probably a small percentage of, of you did. So maybe this will teach you to read the weekly word if you're interested in some, some good encouragement, right? We might be amazed with that, but that's what Paul experienced on his missionary journeys. The Gentiles never summoned him. They never said, oh, come over here. We need need help. Come come with us. Though he did get a vision of that from the man in Macedonia at the time when he was there. But predominantly, they weren't saying, hey. And they, they weren't even really seeking the Lord. But they stumbled upon Jesus. They stumbled upon righteousness. And this is the story of Christianity. It spread all the way around the world. That we're seeing it from the, the first missionary journeys to the spread, to the spread, the further and further and further it goes. And, and lest you think that, that uh, these things are only happening overseas in far off places. So I want to tell you another testimony that, that it's happening right here in the United States. That those who never believe in Jesus kind of stumbled upon him. And for this, I give you the... Testimony of C.J. Mahaney. And I share, he's not a perfect man. He's flawed like all of us. But I share his testimony because it illustrates our text so well. And hopefully some of my motivation to this is that you might have some friends just like C.J. was. Here's what he said. He said, I immersed myself in high school in the drug culture. I partied with a passion and I sought to influence others. I'm ashamed of my sin. But where sin abounded in my life, grace has abounded all the more. A friend of mine relocated to Florida. CJ was in the D.C. area. He said, so this friend went to Florida. It's a period of time after his relocation, he experienced the new birth. He had an immediate burden to return to our area to share the gospel with those friends he'd grown up with. And I was one of those friends. He arranged to meet with me at my house one evening, and I assumed that we would be partying together. So I filled the pipe with hash. It was supposedly from Colombia and began to take a toke, and I offered it to him. And I was immediately surprised when he declined. I was perplexed, but not deterred in continuing on. And so Bob 
began to share his new birth experience some two to three weeks earlier. He was in many ways theologically deficient. But he had some understanding of the cross and some understanding of my need for forgiveness. And all I can tell you is that as he communicated his understanding of the gospel, the cross, his experience of religion, one moment I took a toke of hashish and one second later I was regenerated. My regeneration was not because this individual had led me through a, a specific sequence, a specific prayers, or explained to me the details related to repentance of faith. I'm not minimalizing the importance of repentance of faith. I'm just trying to isolate the moment when I knew that I was a recipient from the call of God. At that moment, I was aware that God had acted upon my heart and that something internally had changed. I did not smoke that pipe again that evening, nor in the near future. Bob provided me with the King James Bible and I opened it and I stayed up literally all night reading this Bible. And I was underlining passage after passage, he said, none of which I could comprehend or could have explained to anyone who inquired. But all I knew is that this book was like no other book I had ever encountered and that within the contents of the book laid the explanation of what took place in my heart. God had called me. God had intervened. And note that this was the first time I ever heard the gospel. I am unaware previous to that moment of ever hearing the gospel communicated. I was not involved in any church. I was unaware of the existence of evangelicalism. I simply committed to partying. I was immersed in the drug culture. My passion was pleasure. And I was not just ignorant of religion. In general, I was ignorant of religion in total. And totally disinterested as well. Obviously, in my nature, I was an enemy of God and hated him. I was not crying out privately or quietly. I was not particularly desperate. Actually, I was thoroughly enjoying myself. And the enjoyment that I received derived from my various activities and observed and appreciated by those in my relational network, and they sought to emulate my example. I was not desperate. I was not convicted. I was not asking questions about the existence of the universe and my ultimate purpose and meaning. I was simply one of a multitude of individuals scattered across the country at that time who were obviously dead in their sin, who in a moment, because of God's good and graciousness, because he's merciful, received a call, and their lives have never been the same since. That's an illustration here of Romans chapter 9, verse 30. The Gentiles who did not pursue this righteousness attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. C.J. Mahaney right, stumbled upon Jesus. His life was never the same afterwards. And I just, at this point in my, my sermon prep, I, I kind of went on and have done some work already for next week. But I just thought, you know what? I just want to pause here for us and just think about it as a church. Rather than going on, the stumbling illustration is so rich that, that we'll have lots of time next week to get that. But, but I just want us to be encouraged even to think about Nepal and think about C.J. Mahaney and think about how People never hearing the gospel, just stumbling upon it, hearing it and believing it. And um, just thought maybe this would encourage you all to be bold in your evangelism as well. Even with those not seeking the Lord. Because God just might act. He just might save a soul. If there's anyone most unlikely, it's probably... Probably CJ there. But Romans 1.16 says this. It says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. 
I know if you're anything like me, you've met far more rejections than at any time people have accepted of it. You've faced far more mockeries. you face far more, no, I'm not interested in that. But, but you know what? There may be people who need to hear because they're ready. God's going to work in their heart. And they don't even know. But they may stumble upon Jesus. And so I encourage you even just, just to think of those in your relational network in your life right now who you might be thinking, most unlikely candidate. Well, maybe that's someone to be bold with this week a little bit. Like you said, there's no way that God would save someone like that. Well, you remember the Apostle Paul. He was on the road to Damascus. He wasn't seeking the Lord. He wasn't seeking righteousness. Right? He was seeking to persecute Christians. He was seeking to destroy them, these, these heretics. He was on the way. And what did God do? He appeared to him. Struck him down right then at that moment. And his life was forever changed. And, and you never know. God is going to strike through the meaning of, through your words. So be, be, be thinking of, of people in your life, maybe even people in serious sin, maybe even people with drug problems, maybe even people with drunkenness problems, maybe people with marriage problems, maybe people with all types of financial problems, whatever problems they have, right? These, these things that maybe they've, they've gotten into because of their sin, they can't, can't get out of it. The gospel has the power to break through those hearts. And if anything, this people not pursuing righteousness Find this righteousness by faith. Or you might even do something as simple as this. Just think about our Easter service. I mean, it's very easy in our culture even to invite someone to an Easter service. You might just mention it. I'm going to work to maybe get some invite cards or something like that. You can invite people to. That'd be an easy way just to maybe bring up Christ, bring up Christianity just in in an easy way. Our focus, of course, Easter morning is going to be on the resurrection at the heart of the gospel, the very thing that people need to hear the gospel be preached. That might be just a way. But just as the Lord opened the minds of the Gentiles, perhaps he would be pleased to open hearts of those here in our culture today who aren't even pursuing righteousness. Because that's what he did. And next week we'll talk about how the Jews stumbled over Jesus and how many do that in our society as well. But I just want us to focus here upon the, the Jews, or the Gentiles rather, who stumbled upon Jesus. Right, and what a great spot, even I also thought, for celebrating the Lord's Supper. Is it just right here as we, we think about salvation and we think about how salvation comes? It, it comes, right, through the word of the cross. And, and, and people, God working in their hearts, they hear it and they're changed and they believe and they trust. We think about your own salvation. If you're here this morning, you say, you know, Jesus, how did you stumble upon Jesus? How did you stumble upon your righteousness. And our stories are all different. I know that. But if you have stumbled upon Jesus, you have stumbled upon your righteousness that comes through faith in Christ, then the Lord's Supper is is a perfect place for us to remember what we have found. Really reflect upon its meaning. Because when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we do what Jesus instructed His disciples to do. He instructed his disciples, and that last night before he was to die, he gave him kind of a, a foreshadowing. He took, took the bread and said, this is my body, which is for you. Eat it in remembrance of me. He took the cup. He said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this often. You should drink it in remembrance of me. And so it's a time we really focus upon the cross of Christ. And, and during the season of Lent, the next six Sundays, just going to focus upon Jesus and what he has done. And remembering Jesus means this, that it's, it's not our righteousness that brings us to God, right? But it's Jesus who brings us to God, and it's only our faith that brings us and connects us with Jesus. 
a righteousness, Paul says in verse 30, that is by faith. It's not through the works of the law. I mean, next week we look at the Jews. We're going to find people who are working to God through the law. That didn't work, but it comes through faith in Jesus. We believe in the work that he's done, and he makes us righteous. And therefore, as we celebrate the supper, helps us to remember him. So this supper is for those of you who've, who've trusted in Jesus. If you've not, right, perhaps today is a day you trust Jesus, that you fall on your knees like those in the Paul did, and that you, you plead Jesus for salvation. Maybe today's a day. Maybe you celebrate that day by taking of the Lord's Supper. But if you're not a believer in Jesus, thank you. Welcome to come. But just let the, let the cup and the bread pass by because this is for those who believe in Jesus, who trust in him, who are remembering him. So let's, let's pray. Father, I would pray, God, that this might be a, just a special time for us as we look back and reflect upon our own life. And really, truth be known, God, all of us have really who believe, have stumbled upon Jesus. Even, even Jewish people, God, stumble upon Jesus as well. Um, God, is, he comes in their path, just like Paul. Paul was a Jew. God, and you showed yourself to him. God, and so I pray that we would God, see Jesus and embrace him. We'll pray for the, the Lord's Supper here as we just take the bread and the cup. Be with us. God, teach us and show us the excellencies of Jesus. Cause us, O oh Lord, God, to just taste, God, and drink. Just other, other senses as we think about what Jesus did on the cross. God, and for, for those here who, God, are not walking with you, I pray they'd repent and make it right. If their hearts are hard, I just pray they just let the, let the cup pass from them, let the bread pass. God, but all this is for the glory of Jesus. May we look to him. And we thank you, O oh God, for the work of, of Jesus on the cross. He is indeed our Messiah. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
Passage from um, Ephesians chapter 2. It lines up this whole theme. You, the uncircumcised, remember at that time you were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of, In- of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who is broken who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commands expressed in ordinances that he might create himself one new man in place of the two, thereby making peace. That he might reconcile us both, Jew and Gentile, to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. That we are now, we who were strangers and aliens, now are fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household. That's the reality that we who were far off have been brought near. We stumbled upon Jesus and found him to be true and lovely. And that's what Jesus was talking about. When he was dying, it's just even not just for the Jews, but also for the world. 
Um, and there are seeds of that in the Old Testament. Psalm 67. God, be gracious to us, Jews, and bless us. And cause your face shine upon us, that your ways may be known on the earth, your salvation among all nations. And that's come to us, Lord Gentiles, we've stumbled upon Christ. Well, this is what Paul received from the Lord, what I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this remembrance of me. Let's eat in remembrance of him.
Just beyond the Six fourteen, Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. In the cross be my glory forever. And that, that's, that's how you know you've truly been changed is where Christ is your glory and your, your boast. Well, in the same way, Jesus also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's drink in remembrance of him. Oh, Lord Jesus, we do thank you for the blood that you have shed for us, the body that you took on yourself, God in the flesh, Emmanuel, to die for us, to take the punishment we deserved. Father, may that be our hearts, may that be our, our minds. God, in, in all ways, may we rejoice in you, may we trust in you. I just thank you for appearing to us. Thank you for appearing to many who weren't seeking. God, but that you showed up and you changed a heart and changed a life. God, I pray that we'd be eminently thankful and joyful of what you've done in our hearts. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. <laughs>